Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. On July 25th, I had the honor to speak with Dr. Jenna Reed as a guest on her informative podcast, The Reflective Doc. In this episode, I speak about my collaborative approach to patient care. We also discuss treatments for OCD, including in the postpartum period, as well as caring for those coping with a cancer diagnosis. Dr. Reed is a board-certified psychiatrist in Philadelphia specializing in anxiety and sleep disorders. She's a member of the clinical faculty at the University of Pennsylvania Department of Psychiatry, She's also a contributor to Psychology Today and writes and podcasts as a reflective doc. She complements her work in psychiatry with her mindset and wellness coaching program, working with individuals seeking a path forward to their most meaningful life. You can learn more at her website, www.thereflectivedoc.com. I enjoyed being a guest on Dr. Reed's podcast and hope you enjoy this special episode. Welcome to this episode of the Reflective Dog Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Josephine McNary. Dr. McNary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. So usually I like to start with hearing a little bit about your story, your path to psychiatry and even these subspecialties within psychiatry. Let's hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I could go so many different directions on talking about how I became interested in, in the subject, but I guess I will, I will begin in medical school when, you know, you're seeing all of these significant medical diagnoses and thinking about the trauma that patients are going through and the families are going through, I was very drawn to that in medical school, kind of the psychosocial, emotional aspect of medical illness and what that does to someone's psyche and the family structure as a whole. I really like the intersection between medicine and the mind. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you had additional training in psycho-oncology. And just briefly, I'm wondering if you could describe what that is. So psycho-oncology is just also the intersection between kind of the cancer journey, the diagnosis, the treatment, the post-cancer life, and how that all fits into someone's psychological life and their well-being. Mm -hmm. And so for many years, I was a psychiatrist at the Sims Mann Center for Integrative Oncology at UCLA, basically a center at UCLA where they provide psychosocial support to individuals and family going through cancer, the cancer journey. And so I would see a variety of patients. I would see people who had just been diagnosed with various cancers. And there's kind of a whole cluster of symptoms that we see during that time in terms of psychological symptoms. So a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty about the future. And then you move into kind of treating people during the cancer treatment when they're going through chemotherapy or radiation. And along with that comes a whole nother set of psychological issues. And then the post-cancer journey, which actually is kind of what I love the most, thinking about people who, okay, they've been through cancer treatment, but now what, right? Their life has forever changed. And teaching people and being with people during that time, I think is incredibly rewarding in terms of thinking about, okay, this is your life now. Yes, you could have a recurrence, but how do you live your life with a little bit of uncertainty? And I think that's actually 
amazing skill for somebody to, to learn how to master, regardless of cancer diagnosis or not, right? Life is uncertain. And so how do you live each day kind of with that anxiety of uncertainty, but still being able to fully kind of experience life to the fullest? Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important for patients to know that there are these centers, right? I worked at the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania. And I think there was a relief I saw in patients just coming into my office and being able to talk about how they felt about their diagnosis or about their illness or some of the fears they had that maybe they didn't share with family because they didn't want to burden them or they wanted to appear positive and hopeful and felt that pressure from their family to behave in that way. So I do think they're such terrific centers. So I'm glad that they exist and for people to know a little bit more about them. Me too. And this idea of just having someone who understands what you're going through, I think is, is healing in itself. And these centers often offer group therapy and just the ability of people to be with other people going through similar struggles is incredibly therapeutic as well. Absolutely. And I think there's that team approach there in those centers as well. And it sounds like, you know, in Cal psychiatry, you've got a large group of psychiatrists who are seeing patients Can you talk about, you know, is psychotherapy part of that? Do they use the medications? Do you work with teams or other therapists collaboratively? How do you sort of run your practice? So I guess I'll go back to how I began my private practice. And so after graduating residency, I was completing my fellowship in psycho-oncology at UCLA. And I also was working at a residential treatment center in Los Angeles for mood disorders. And that was really my first experience kind of outside of the university setting. And really what it was, it was just this incredible learning experience for me because it was a setting where there was this incredible team, right? So I was part of the team as a psychiatrist. There were therapists, different types of therapists too. There were somatic therapists, there were nutritionists, and there was the staff who was with these patients all day long, right? Because they lived at this residential center. And so I began my career really having the sense of a team before I ever went into private practice on my own. And so I just, I just assumed that was just how, how private practice worked, right? That you just had this team really kind of there to support the patient. You would not only spend time with the patient, but you would spend time with the team really understanding together kind of how this person all fit together in terms of their current needs and what their needs were moving forward. So it was really, I was not only kind of working at the Sims Man Center at UCLA with this team approach and really trying to support the person um, in a significant way. It was also at this residential center that I really had this team. And so moving into my private practice, it just seemed like so totally natural that of course we should, you know, I'm the psychiatrist. I don't do a lot of therapy in my practice. I used to, but I just don't have that much time anymore. And therapists have just gotten to know me over time. And so a lot of patients would come to me already in therapy. So that wasn't the role that I needed to fill. And so my my practice just grew as kind of a medication person who really supported other modalities of treatment. Mm-hmm. And I've developed a really great relationships with therapists and other mental health providers over the years. And we just work together and I figure out easy ways to be in touch with them. And we always are just going back and forth whenever I see their patient. I reach out to them. Sometimes pre-COVID, when I have more people coming into the office, we would just call their therapist while they were in the room. And maybe they wouldn't answer the phone, but me just leaving a message for the therapist while my patient was in the room made my patient 
feel cared for probably. I mean, a lot, that's a lot of feedback that I got, but also they understood how much I prioritized this, this collaboration and making sure that, you know, we were all in communication in order to provide the best care. Mm-hmm. Who would you, I mean, if someone's seeking treatment for depression or anxiety, what would be the benefits of having this kind of collaborative model as opposed to seeing someone who is doing meds and therapy at the same time? I mean, I think it's great to have one provider to do medication and therapy. And I really do miss my therapy cases because, you know, yes, I do know my patients that I see for medication management, but I probably don't know them as well as I did my weekly therapy patients. Right. And so I really do need to lean on therapists to really give me feedback and information on what's happening on the ground, really. So because they usually see their patients or clients every week. And so they have a much deeper understanding of what's going on in their lives. And as I've developed trusting relationships with therapists, I know they're going to let me know if there's something that I, I need to know. I typically see my patients every one to three months. And so you know, in my visit with them, they do a pretty good job of giving me a, a good synopsis of what's happened since our last meeting. But, you know, there's always little things that maybe they're not sure if it's even worth mentioning, but a therapist would probably be able to kind of tease out what information is important. So my answer is yes, it would be great to have a provider who does both, but there's some logistical issues around it. A lot of psychiatrists don't offer therapy and medication management. They tend to be quite busy with their medication patients. And so it's just hard to fit in kind of weekly therapy patients is is the reality. But I also, I mean, the other, the benefit of having it be separate is that you have different perspectives too. And actually, one of the reasons why I don't do too much therapy anymore, I'm very much a generalist in terms of therapy. And living in Los Angeles, I have this huge network of specialists in terms of different types of therapies and different types of personalities. And so sometimes when I have a patient who actually doesn't come from their therapist, one of the things I love to do is get a sense of, okay, what are their needs? I know what their needs are for medication, but what are their needs for therapy? And it's kind of this idea of, okay, who do I know who would, who specializes in maybe let's say someone who's incredibly anxious and is avoiding things. Okay. Who do I know? Who's a CBT specialist who personality wise would fit really well with this patient. Cause it's not only about the type of therapy the therapist does, but it's about kind of how they're going to mix with the patient and how they're going to just be in the room with them in a way that feels comforting and secure for the, for the patient. Yeah. And the matching the personalities, I think is such a helpful tool because therapy is like any relationship. You have to feel comfortable with someone. You have to resonate with the way that they approach things. And I totally agree. I found that in my own practice is who would be the subspecialist who might really be able to focus on their concerns so that I can help them by focusing on the medicine and referring them, including for things like holistic approaches, right? Integrative or complementary medicine approaches, which I think more and more patients are interested in and are hesitant about choosing medications instead of some of these alternative methods. I'm wondering if you could speak to that. If you had someone come in, especially in California, where maybe there's even more awareness of some of these other modalities and is hesitant about medication, but you think they could really benefit, how do you describe it to them or how do you discuss that with them? Yeah. So that's another thing that I love to discuss. You know, it's, it's often that I get a phone call from a therapist who says, okay, I have this client I interchange client and patient all the time, but I have this client who I'm seeing who let's say they've been working together for months 
and their anxiety is just getting in the way of really being able to move forward in the therapy work. And so the therapist often says, okay, they are very hesitant about medication. I don't want them to be scared off about medication. And often therapists think of me as kind of a very calm, conservative psychiatrist who's who's non-threatening, right? And we kind of talk about how I might approach this person who's really hesitant about medication, but also at the same time is really struggling. And they're at this point considering seeing a psychiatrist. They may not for sure know that they want to do medication, but they might want to at least get a little bit of a sense of how it could be helpful. And so in terms of how I approach it is, is just that way, right? And so this idea of I'm not going to force you to take a medication. My job is to just educate you. I'm going to tell you about different options. You're going to tell me about your symptoms. I'm going to get a sense of how it's really affecting your life. And then I'm going to give you some choices of options of medication that could possibly improve your quality of life. And we for sure go through, a lot of people are concerned about side effects. So we spend a lot of time talking about side effects. And the other thing I spend a lot of time talking about is how we could potentially dose it or introduce a medication in a very gentle way way that will improve the chances of someone tolerating the medication, meaning they're not going to have as many side effects and enhance the chances of them being able to get to a dose that's actually very meaningful in terms of symptom reduction. And so approaching it kind of with curiosity about someone's experience, making sure they know that my role is just to be here to support your decision to take medication if that's what you want to do. And I always tell my patients to you know, I'm not just available during the times that we have set for, for their appointment. Because a lot of people who are anxious, they think, okay, I'm going to see this doctor. She's going to give me this prescription and they have to wait weeks and weeks before I can tell her how it goes, right? I, it does, that doesn't feel supportive. And so I always tell patients, look, I'm always around. So you can call me, text me. If you think about the question that you might want to ask me, then you should probably reach out. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a week down the road or a day down the road after starting medication, because having the sense that I'm with them on this journey tends to make people feel a little bit more secure in kind of doing something that they're feeling a little hesitant about. I mean, I think it's also important to know it's ultimately their decision, right? And I think a lot of people say, okay, yes, I want to do meds, but I'm really still worried about it, but I know I need to get better. And I know this is an intervention I need to do, but I'm still worried. Right. And so just trying to be kind of that calming presence, that supportive presence, I think goes a long way. Mm -hmm. And I hear from patients often, I think it's very different for them to decide to start a medication for their anxiety or depression versus going into their primary care provider and being told, you know, your blood pressure has been running high these past few sessions. Let's start some an ACE inhibitor or another blood pressure medication. And the difference between how they feel about themselves and how they see themselves in starting a medication for anxiety or depression and what that implies about them versus starting a blood pressure medication, I think can be so different. Do you have any tips on how you address that or what patients could understand? Yeah. So that comes up all of the time. So I think the difference between something like blood pressure versus something like a major depressive episode is that people have a sense, well, I guess blood pressure could be improved by lifestyle changes and things like that. But the sense of like, I need a pill to make this better. Right. I mean, that's really my, one of my only choices versus something like depression, this idea of, well, can I just get myself out of it? right? I mean, why can't I just get better? And I think that's really where that internal dilemma comes with within someone of like, 
do I really need a pill to feel better? Can I just do this on my own? And the answer is depression is a disease. And like other diseases we have in medicine, we have a treatment, a medication treatment for it. We also have other treatments for it, but oftentimes it's that combination of medication with other modalities of treatment, which might be therapy, could be the most kind of helpful way to get someone better faster. And so this idea of, okay, if I take a medication for my depression, then I'm, you know, taking the easy way out, or it's going to, a lot of times people say, I get this question all the time. Okay. Is it going to change me? I don't want to be this zombie. And I kind of dance around that, that question a little bit. The first thing I tell somebody is like, well, do you feel like yourself now? If you're really depressed or you're really anxious, are you really feeling like yourself? And usually people say, no, I feel pretty awful and I feel pretty numb. And I believe this. And I tell people the point of medication is to get you back to who you, who you are and your real self, not someone who completely different. And so this, I think it's interesting. I also really love seeing people who have never been on medication before, because they've never been through that journey of seeing kind of what you're like before versus after, but this idea of you know, oftentimes when people come back after, you know, a few months of treatment, or maybe even after a few weeks of treatment and they feel much better, they say, wow, I, I feel so much better. I do feel my, like myself. I don't know why I was so worried about taking this medication. And then my answer to that, because it comes up all the time is, well, you know, it wasn't the right time. And so if you deciding to take medication four weeks ago was the right time because you were ready. And if we had forced you into taking it, you know, two months prior to that, it may have not worked as well because you maybe you would have been fighting it the whole time because you would have maybe just not felt like emotionally ready for this change in terms of an intervention of the medication. And so it's it's always as a psychiatrist, and I'm sure you've seen this too, you kind of, we've had the honor to see people through these journeys many, many times over and over again. And so I totally understand somebody who hasn't been through this journey before being very skeptical about how something could work like that and how, you know, I don't want to be different. And, you know, look, sometimes there are outcomes where it's not ideal, but most of the time I would say, you know, the outcome is what we're hoping for. Yeah. And I wanted to talk specifically, you mentioned when we were speaking before the podcast that you do treat a lot of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. And I think there is a lot of confusion even about what that is and what it's not. You know, you'll hear in hear people talking about, oh, I'm so OCD. I like things to be a particular way or things to be orderly. Can you speak a little bit about what the diagnosis of OCD entails? Yeah. So I think the best way to conceptualize OCD, maybe for the listener, is to think about like many of the disorders we treat, there's this spectrum of intensity, severity of symptoms, right? And so on kind of the most mild form of the spectrum, more of what maybe what we would call obsessive compulsive personality disorder, you have somebody who's just kind of like they say, oh, I'm so OCD. Like I need to, I like to keep my house neat, right? Or I make sure everything on my desk is like in neat piles, right? It, it doesn't necessarily affect their lives in a negative way. Maybe their friends kind of poke fun at it, right? But, you know, look, if they need to run somewhere and their desk is not orderly, like they can leave it and then come back to it, right? So it's, you know, it's a little bit of a personality style, but it's not really causing a bit major distress in someone's life. And then the other end of the spectrum, you have significant obsessive compulsive disorder and somebody who, let's say, is so worried about contamination in the outside world that they just can't leave their home. 
right? So I would say that is a major impairment in someone's functioning if they can't be out in the world and do what they need to do and socialize and interact with people. I mean, in an appropriate COVID setting, right? But, um, you know, that's a major impairment. And so I see kind of all along that spectrum. So I see people who are just, you know, a little bit maybe like a little bit OCD is kind of what people call themselves. Right. But it's like, you know, it it depends. Like it, they often come to me with that concern if once it starts causing a little bit of impairment in their life. And then I see very severe cases of OCD. And so it's all along that spectrum. So OCD, you could have more behavioral OCD where someone washes their hands multiple times a day, or they count things over and over again, or they check things over and over again. Those are kind of things classic that you think of OCD, right? And then you have more of the obsessional part of OCD, which is actually more common. And I see a lot more of that. And a lot of times people that's, it's someone's internal world. And so it's hard for people around that person to really get a sense of how distressing that is, but it's incredibly distressing to the individual, right? And so obsessive thoughts, oftentimes they're ego dysphonic thoughts, which are thoughts that aren't really, don't mesh with someone's kind of personality or the way that they conceptualize the world. So sometimes there are a lot of times these thoughts about kind of obsessive thoughts about sexuality, right? And thinking, okay, am I straight or am I gay? And the person might actually be straight, but there's these obsessional thoughts about, but what if I was gay? Right. And it kind of takes on this world of their own to the point where it's just these thought loops and just keeps people from really just engaging in life. So it's kind of all on the spectrum in terms of treatment. I often tell my OCD patients that OCD is just really stubborn. It's a stubborn thing to treat is treatable at the same time. And so oftentimes the standard of care in terms of just thinking about treatment for OCD really are the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but it's usually if you use really high doses of them. And so when I, someone comes to me who maybe has never been in treatment for OCD before, I kind of set the stage a little bit of like, okay, we're going to start this medication, but you're probably going to need higher doses. And this is, you know, it might mean there might be a little bit of more side effect, but it also might mean if we get to the right dose, you're going to start feeling better too. And so, you know, I think it's just this communication, this relationship with somebody and understanding kind of what the medication journey is going to be. And the other thing with OCD, I do not like treating it with just medication. And so if I have someone with OCD who is not in therapy and I want to make sure it's the right kind of therapy for OCD, I'm not going to be able to treat it as aggressively and meaningfully as if they were in therapy. And so I always need my patients to not only consider medication and be open to medication, but they need to be with a cognitive behavioral therapist or an exposure and response prevention therapist that really is going to get to the behavioral workings of their mind and behaviors and start kind of really chipping away at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always talk to patients with OCD about really identifying these thoughts as OCD thoughts because they can get so into exploring them and figuring them out and trying to understand them and learning how to just identify them as obsessional OCD thoughts can be really powerful. Could you speak just briefly about what exposure and response prevention is? So this idea of exposure and response prevention and cognitive behavioral therapy is that basically you slowly introduce someone, let's say they have a fear of contamination, right? And so you slowly do things that 
take them out of their comfort level, right? The therapist actually goes with them into the field and she touches a trash can. So, and then she talks about, okay, how are you feeling? How is your anxiety? Yes, we're kind of pushing that limit, like moving you into areas that you feel very uncomfortable, but this is the way to desensitize you actually, to get you into the world. So it's this desensitization process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you make a great point that it needs to be this particular type of therapy, because if people are doing a more generalized talk therapy and talking about these obsessional thoughts over and over and over again, it's sort of adding to that loop, right? You're actually increasing those thoughts. And when we're trying to limit them from doing these exposures, we're trying to just weaken that loop, that feedback loop becoming weaker and weaker. But I think there is this counterintuitive idea about it. Like, why would I put myself through what I find so incredibly distressing that makes me want to do these compulsions. And so I think learning more about that, and I'll put a link in the episode notes about a site at University of Pennsylvania and some other locations to learn a little bit more about what one does in exposure and response prevention, but also how effective it can be. Because I think it's important that someone with OCD at least tries that modality to really know if it can be helpful for them, because it can be life-changing, as I'm sure you've seen. I've seen many cases of people's lives that have really turned around, which Mm -hmm. is so rewarding to see. What about, I know you treat women in the postpartum period, and I wonder if we can combine the two discussions, because it seems like OCD thoughts can happen in the postpartum. People with OCD can have differences in pregnancy and postpartum. What would you say to a woman who is pregnant and may be concerned about some of these issues? Yeah. So I'm really glad you brought postpartum anxiety and OCD up. So I tend to see women through their pregnancy journey into postpartum. I mean, sometimes I see people postpartum because they didn't see a psychiatrist during pregnancy, but let's say kind of, we're thinking about a case, a typical case where I might see someone during pregnancy or ideally knew them before pregnancy, they become pregnant, then they have a child. And so I really understand their mental health history and their needs and how their maybe anxiety and depression kind of emerge and what their triggers are. And so during pregnancy, I think the first step is to just normalize it. And so I talk to all of my moms who are pro or pregnant about risk for postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, and what that looks like. And so I know we have, we need much more time to talk about postpartum depression and anxiety, but if I just focus on the postpartum OCD piece, I normalize it for for moms. So I say, you know, look, a lot of moms, regardless if they have anxiety or not, sometimes have really intrusive thoughts postpartum. And so they might have a thought of, I mean, this obviously is a little tricky because if moms have thoughts about harming their babies, they should definitely seek help. But a lot of moms have these intrusive thoughts of like, what if I harmed my baby, right? What if I did that? And it becomes something that's really distressing to them. And oftentimes when I think about ego dystonic, it's something that they would never do, but it's like, why do I have this thought that keeps on coming into my mind? Right. And what I often tell moms when they're pregnant of kind of this idea of like, look, this can happen. And it's actually pretty common. And moms are really often very ashamed of it. And so I just like to put it out there and I say, look, if this happens to you, I just want to make sure you know that you can bring it up because I think it's easier to tell somebody than keep it inside. And so kind of this idea that educating moms about, okay, during the postpartum period, especially if you have a history of anxiety, especially if you have a history of OCD, you could have these intrusive thoughts that really boil up to the surface relating to your baby, maybe in the postpartum period. And so I at least kind of set the stage, make sure they know that that can happen. And we're going to watch it closely. 
And of course, in the postpartum period, with any thoughts about like having your baby be in danger or yourself being in danger, of course, we need to talk about it. Of course, you need to bring it up. But a lot of moms are like, well, I didn't want you want to say anything because I don't want you to think I'm going to harm my baby because I'm not, but I have these thoughts. And it's kind of part of this idea of like, let's just be open about it. Let's create the space where you feel comfortable kind of letting me know or your family members know ideally both about thoughts that we're having. And we can kind of help you with these thoughts. We can help you kind of figure out, you know, what we're going to do about them. Do we treat it more aggressively with medication? Do we think about it kind of a more aggressive intervention with therapy or do we just monitor them and just kind of keep a close eye on them? So it's kind of this tricky thing because everyone's like, oh, thoughts about harming babies. That's, that's so significant and, and scary. And it is, and it deserves medical attention. But at the same time, there are a lot of moms who have these thoughts that have no intention of doing any harm whatsoever to their child. And that in itself is just so distressing to them too, that they're even having those thoughts. Yeah. I think just normalizing that because like you said, they don't have to have a history of anxiety or OCD, but I think for that to come out of the blue and to have that worry, what if I drop my child? What if the water's too warm? What if I lose control of the stroller when I'm pushing it down the street? I mean, some of these really distressing, frightening thoughts And if they don't have anyone to talk to about it, or they feel like it puts them at risk of losing that child, when then things just escalate, right? And they feel such shame. So I think learning more about that and putting that out there, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Yes. And just to just make sure I I emphasize it even more, it's something if a mom is listening to this and having these thoughts, it's something that they definitely need to seek medical care for, right? And this idea that you should always make sure people are aware of these thoughts to medical professionals, mental health providers. And the hope is that mental health providers are kind of able to hear that and able to really help provide the support that's needed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was looking at you know your website, you've got the podcast, Mind Stories. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what you feature on there, who you feature on there, and why they might want to check it out? Yes. Well, I feel like this interview, we're really like getting a lot of topics covered, which is great. <laughs> so, you know, it started to about two years ago. I found myself in a session with clients or patients. A lot of what I do if a patient comes to me who is not currently in therapy, trying to figure out what a good therapy fit might be. I will say I have plenty of patients who are just on medication, you know, if they for various reasons, right? But there's not a, you know, immediate need for them to be in therapy. And so a lot of people are just on medication, but a lot of people also, they come to me and I think, okay, yeah, you need medication, but you really also need this therapeutic support. And so oftentimes I would spend a lot of my time explaining different types of therapeutic interventions. Actually, the one that I found the most difficult and time-consuming to explain was dialectical behavioral therapy. It's just a, a modality of treatment that's incredibly effective for certain things, but it's very complex in terms of what it is, kind of how to move forward in it and why it works. And I thought to myself, you know, I wish I just had a database of people that I know and trust who provide very specific types of therapy. I wish I just had a database of interviews with them where I ask them all the questions I want to ask. So then I can tell my patients, okay, listen to this discussion I had with this person. And you can kind of learn a bit more about the ins and outs of this specific type of therapy. And it might be that I really want them to see that provider, or I just want them to kind of think about a type of therapy modality that I think would be really helpful for them. And so, yes, that's how it began. And I sent 
send them to my patients all the time when I think about different treatment modalities. And I've, I think I have like, I don't I lost count. I think I have about 70 podcasts on at this point. And I feel like it's still growing because it just, there's so many different specialties within the mental health field, which is what makes this field so exciting. And so, yeah, I've just had a really great time interviewing people, friends that I've known who are clinicians, um, people that I just reached out to because I thought what they did was really cool. And so I've learned so much from it. And I often tell the people I interview, I'm like, I can ask all the questions that I'm embarrassed to ask because I think I should know them already. (laughs) Because I'm like, I think the listener might be interested in this, but in reality, I actually need some clarification on how they work and how they, you know, work with patients. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. I've probably learned as much as anyone from doing my own podcast and talking to people about their journeys and what they're doing now. So, and to have as a resource for providers, they want to send maybe something to their patients, listen to this information about DBT or OCD or things like that. So I'll definitely put a link to that as well in the episode notes uh, and to the blog, which I'm excited to read even more of those articles in there. Anything that you'd want to finish with today or any last thoughts that you'd want to mention as we wind down? First off, I'm very excited to be here. It's exciting to see your podcast grow and just to be a guest is actually a different experience than being a host. So it's actually more, a little bit more exciting and, and entertaining for me to, to be able to talk about what I do. So thank you. And I've known you for a bit and I, it's kind of nice to know someone, you know, other clinicians outside of California, which is, which is a nice thing. But I mean, this this idea that the way I kind of generally approach my care with people is so individualized. And I think it speaks to the fact that I have so many podcasts on different things because there are so many different needs out there. And so I think trying to navigate mental health care is really tricky, mainly because sometimes it's just hard to find providers, but also people just don't know where to start. Right. And so there, there are so many different kinds of therapists, so many different types of treatments, different kinds of psychiatrists and different types of medications out there. And so this idea that it, it's, I totally get that it's, I'm assuming very overwhelming process for many, but both of us are here to help people kind of simplify that and really hone in on maybe what the most efficient and effective treatment can be for them. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to do the podcast, but also for creating your own and sharing so much of this helpful information for people out there who, in particular, over the past year and a half are struggling and feeling isolated and having difficulty finding care. So, Dr. McNary, it's so lovely to see you and hopefully yeah. we'll be back on the podcast in the future. So thanks. Yeah, I'd love to. All right. Thanks. I appreciate it. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and nine offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.